Dr. Imran Mahmood studied medicine at Oxford before studying public health at Harvard on a Fulbright scholarship. He then ranked first in the country, entering the ophthalmology training program, promptly leaving and joining McKinsey. In 2018, he co-founded Nye Health, raising over £4 million. He's now a startup advisor, angel investor, digital health consultant, and content creator. We speak about angel investing, which was traditionally a way in which high net worth individuals could invest in small startups, but is now increasingly becoming possible for many more people. We speak about the digital nomad post-economic lifestyle and whether doing whatever you want, wherever you want, actually makes you happy. And one of my favorite one of Imran's principles, to be interesting, do interesting things. I hope you enjoy. So in terms of angel investing, can you talk a little bit about how one gets into that? So I'd be really interested to know what kind of capital you need. Is it something that you can do when you're not extremely wealthy? And also just the motivations behind it. I mean, clearly there is some expectation to make returns and maybe do really well off it. But I've also seen that some people talk about there just being a massive networking advantage in doing it and just putting small checks into lots of different companies and those almost being like your feelers into the world of, of, of business. Awesome. Okay, so um, you're absolutely right. Let me, let me break this down into those three buckets. There's capital, motivations, and networking. Um, on the capital side, the good news is that a few things have changed in the last few years. When I was first raising for my startup in 2018, the like dogma was that having a big and fragmented cap table um, of like lots of different investors was considered to be like disadvantageous for a variety of reasons. First of all, you need to get them all to sign paperwork, like say if you need to issue new shares or you need them to give you investor consents. Just having a long tail of like people with a very small amount of skin in the game was considered to be like a bit messy, um, a bit of a disadvantage in terms of like executing legal documents and also possibly a sign that you couldn't raise from an established fund. Now the pendulum has kind of swung the other way where now you have you know, startups raising party rounds and you have like startups that have um, set themselves up specifically to solve this problem of enabling lots of angel investors or individual investors to come into an investment round on one line on the cap table. So using special purpose vehicles as an example. So that has also meant that the minimum amount of investment an individual needs to make to get into that special purpose vehicle is a lot smaller. So now I think the smallest ticket size you'll see is about a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars. I've even seen people invest five hundred dollars. Um, you could argue like, what's the point in putting five hundred dollars in a startup? But uh, we can talk about that in a second. So capital requirements have generally come down, and the environment has become more permissive for small tickets particularly, you know, through vehicles like special purpose vehicles. Companies that do that are AngelList, there's um, Vauban that was recently acquired, there's Odin, um, and I've used most of these products myself. In terms of my motivations, um, yeah, so you, I think you're, you sort of touched on it, but principally they're not like financial. And by that, I mean, I'm not creating my retirement plan on some assumption that my angel investments will pay off. Now, for me personally, I feel actually a great sense of purpose when I make angel investments. Because when, you're, when you work with early stage entrepreneurs, it's a bit like setting off on an adventure with someone. You know, there's a lot of risk involved. You're like, maybe you're setting, if you can sort of picture the scene, you're setting across on a journey across like the choppy seas and you have some like dream of um, some upside on the other side of the ocean. It's sort of that sentiment that you're kind of backing these people that are trying to do these slightly crazy things with, you know, very... Uh, aspirational views of like what they can achieve, maybe slightly unrealistic, but they're very talented, very determined. 
And it's just very exciting to be part of that. It really gives you a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. And oftentimes, especially with the companies I've been working with, they're solving real and meaningful problems. So just as an example, some of them are looking at neglected medical conditions where traditional treatments in even developed healthcare systems are not very good, like for tinnitus. Another example would be uh, companies that are doing things to combat climate change or reduce inequality in the workplace. For example, Code First Girls is training women to be software developers and engineers in technical roles and has a very high representation of diverse backgrounds. So that sense of purpose, that sense of mission sort of backing causes for me is a tremendous part of the motivation. And then also like to come to your third point about networking, that's absolutely true. So as a as an entrepreneur, as an ex-entrepreneur, well, I'm, I'm working on my second business at the moment. It's not a traditional tech startup, but it's a kind of advisory company and media company. As an entrepreneur, you face a lot of challenges. Like you don't have the same security. You don't have the same brand recognition that people that work at big companies do. But entrepreneurs, like they know in their heart why they're doing it. They're doing it because they feel alive when they do their work. They feel a sense of purpose. They feel a sense of ownership. They can express their identity through their work, their own personal values, whatever it may be. So by angel investing, you're basically sort of creating bonds and ties between yourself and other people that are sort of aligned with your way of thinking of, about the world, that are on their own mission, their own journey. And these people generally are like very talented, very high agency people. Like they're not passive you know, like they're not passive people in worker mode. They're like very solution orientated people that are trying to solve big problems. And by building these alliances through investing and backing and supporting these people, it just, it does create a sense of community and a sense of network, both between you as an angel investor and the people that you co-invest with as you collaborate on projects. If I can, if I can give an analogy, you know, each investment that you diligence or you consider is kind of like a, a piece of work. And when an investment closes, it's a great feeling. Um, but also with the investees, with the founders, um, you know, and some of the founders I've backed, um, you know, they already, I know that some of those businesses are facing challenges as many early stage startups do, but that's kind of besides the point because, you know, I still want to support them through those challenges. I still want to support them even if they leave those companies and they go on to found something else because the relationship with them is, is not something which is specific to the company that they're founding in that instance. And that might sound very counterintuitive if you just think about it as a financial investment. So for me personally, I know like other angel investors will have different motivations. For me, that networking piece and, and understanding those problems, understanding how they're tackling them, being part of this like engine that's creating jobs for the economy, all of these things for me are like tremendously important. Before I started learning a bit more about this whole tech world, I used to think that, okay, if I've got some money then and someone needs some money, they're going to take my money. But it seems like there's a big thing about access and knowing the right people. And it's not just a case of if you have five, 10,000 pounds and you're willing to put it into a company that necessarily that person will accept that money off you. So I just wanted to ask if you're in a position or if I'm in a position where I'd want to put, say, five to 10,000 pounds into different companies that I found interesting, is it that I need some kind of other thing about me, something else I'm bringing? Like, for example, I had my own network that would be helpful for them in, in their business or I had my own connections. Like, or I previously had a really good relationship with them. Essentially, like what else do you need apart from just the raw capital to start angel investing? That's a great question. I think the first question to ask yourself, especially now that we are in an age of relative abundance when it comes to capital availability, is like, why should a founder take my money? And this is kind of a crazy question. If you think like even just a few years ago, um, the thought that founders would be like very, very picky about who they take money from 
I think in 2018, which was only four, four years ago, that wasn't really the case. Like I know that there were lots of founders that would take money just because the availability of capital, um, the perception of it at least, and at least the availability in the private markets, my perception is that it was tighter, it was less available. And I, I don't know exactly what the drivers are of that, but I think obviously we've been in a kind of secular bull market for a number of years. Um, a lot of people, you know, especially those who were liquid and, and invested during the COVID crisis saw tremendous gains, many of them. I know a lot of those gains have now been reversed, but there are people that basically were able to you know, increase their net worth and probably have more capital to deploy now. And all of the startups that have made it easier to invest in the private market. So I think generally, yeah, there's a lot of capital available. So that question is critical. Like, why should somebody take my money? There are lots of different reasons for that, but like a simple list might be, um, first of all, that you can introduce them either to other investors or you can introduce them to customers. Um, or you have an audience and you can just amplify all of their needs and their brand and their, you know, their perception amongst potential hires and whatnot. So big picture medicine would be a great example of that, especially for startups in the healthcare space. Your audience uh, are people who may be very, very relevant for some of these companies to get their voice, to get their brand, their story out to. Another reason is that people like to have founders on the cap table because if you've been through the journey, if you understand like how long it takes to build a company, the fact that it's not a linear path, there's a high rate of failure, et cetera, then those types of investors are just easier to take on the journey, especially through the twists and turns of a company. And there are certain founders who are very high profile. So, you know, like founders of companies like Monzo or um, GoCardless or um, other household brands like startups with a very, you know, wide reaching like brand recognition, having those founders on the cap table, that sends a signal. And signaling is an important part of fundraising. So I think that's another important reason the final thing I would say is that um, in some cases, people have very specific skills, very specific knowledge. So I recently invested in a company where one of the execs of the biggest public company in that same space, one of those execs has invested. In fact, there's two companies like that. Uh, one which I'm in the process of hopefully being able to invest in where one of the co-founders of Slack has invested and it's a company that's building for the future of work. And the other is a um, life sciences technology company where one of the execs from um, Viva which is a company that makes technology for pharmaceutical companies and for research, one of their execs or ex-execs is investing. So those types of angels, they send a signal because if a founder can recruit those people onto the cap table, it tells other investors that, hey, somebody who knows a ton about this industry and this business has actually put their money where their mouth is and backed this company, so you should pay attention. Can we touch on one of your ideas, which I think is really beneficial related to networking, which is to be interesting, do interesting things. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that the internet rewards people that are interesting or funny uh, or can express their ideas well. And I have found myself in a situation before where I've thought like, you know, what can I create content about? What can I talk about on the internet? Because I recognize that having an audience and creating content is an important part of like, how you present yourself in the modern world. I mean, people will Google you before a job interview, before a podcast, before a call, it's bound to happen. But also, you know, no matter what you want to do, especially as an entrepreneur, having an audience will make your life easier. Even as academics these days, like having an audience, I'm sure makes your academic clout a lot stronger. So if you are struggling for like what to create content on or what to talk about or how to be of benefit to people, I think this mantra is like really powerful. If you want to be someone of interest that other people would want to follow your tweets, your uh, video content, your newsletters, whatever it may be, 
then just do interesting things. And it's also like a good recipe for life in terms of skills development, in terms of network development, building experiences is just do interesting things. And I'll leave it to like listeners to decide what an interesting thing is in this context, but it might be learning something. It might be taking on a challenge. Uh, it might be reaching out to someone, taking a risk of some kind, documenting the process. All of those count. So that's how I, like, that's the context in which I think about this quote is that, especially if you're like struggling for direction, not quite sure what to do at this phase of your professional journey, whatever it may be. Um, one thing I say to people is like, don't sit in a room and try and like cogitate your way through the problem. Like go and do something, like find a problem and apply yourself to the problem. And if you want to be interesting on the internet, then document the process. I think the reason I like asking you about random topics is because you've had a very uh, diverse and like rich experience in different fields. Some of the more traditional academia, uh, clinical medicine side of things, and then some of the more rogue, I mean, starting your own startup and exiting rogue that is the right word. and investing in things like that. And I don't want to try and, you know, work out how much money you're earning at different points of this journey. But it's clear that at certain points, you're probably earning a very decent amount. And at other points, like working at the NHS, you probably weren't earning that much. But over to you is, does money make you happy? Can can money buy happiness from your experience? Um, good question. So just, I actually, I published um, in one of my videos, I did say a little bit, I think it was the video on wealth creation. I'm not trying to plug it here, but there's like a little animation in there about how my annual salary has changed as a multiple of my salary first year out of medical school. And like, honestly, it has fluctuated by a factor of 10X um, year to year. That's not an exaggeration. So it, um, it, it, I think for many people, first of all, like that is a very difficult thing to contemplate because when I say fluctuated, I don't mean it's gone up. I mean, sometimes it's gone down and other times it's gone up. And so for a lot of people, they, they think that, you know, the kind of inevitable progress that they need to sustain in their career is like partly measured by the fact that their salary always trends upwards. The truth is that if you want to do something um, that can take you to the next level of skills, credibility, income, you often have to take a step down. You have to take a risk. Your salary and your income will drop in the near term for it to go up in the long term. Think about an example where someone who quits their job in order to like start a company. Okay, that company might fail, but in the first instance, they more than likely will take a pay hit. They may then make a lot more money in the future. It's not guaranteed, but they'll have that initial dip before things can come back up again. So uh, specifically to your question, does money buy happiness? I think in my case, money buys freedom and it also buys the ability to like do stuff that I believe in. Maybe that is freedom as well. When I say freedom, it means, what I mean by that is that for us as a household, if we did not like me and my wife, if we did not want to work, both work full time, for example, then your earning power creates that cushion to reduce your hours. Some people, by the way, will never reduce their hours because I have come across people where their mentality is like, I'm going to keep increasing my earning potential, but I'm also going to like keep working full time. Our view is that, you know, there's a certain amount of income we would like to make in order to sustain a certain lifestyle, to save, to invest. You know, when you have children, you have to worry about these things. Um, but we will buy some of our time back by like either, you know, outsourcing certain things or just not working some of the time particularly as we homeschool our children, you know, keeping some time free to do that because they're not at school, which is kind of like a form of childcare all day, it's important. So money buys freedom in our case. Um, it also buys the freedom, freedom from and freedom to, freedom from anxiety, freedom from having to be somewhere at a specific time 
um, do a specific activity that you're, you know, you're basically bound to do. And also the freedom to do things like to travel, to angel invest. These are all examples. So those things can really contribute to a sense of contentment and happiness. For me, the ultimate like form of happiness is to have the freedom to work on things that I really care about. And that is for me enabled by money. So it's not that I don't want to work. My, my idea of freedom is not like to sit on a beach. I don't think I could survive for more than a day, barely a day. But if I could choose to do work that I'm interested in on terms that I'm happy with for the amount of time per week that makes sense to me from places in the world that um, are interesting for me to, to work from, then, then, you know, then that's good. And I think money is a big part of that. Well, then let me follow on and then ask you about whether freedom or autonomy gets you happiness. Because, I mean, you're now effectively living a digital nomad type of life with your family where you can travel to any city in the world and work from there. But then a thought I've been having is that the more autonomy you get, the more kind of weird and non-traditional you become, the more <laughs> detached you become from tr traditional society, right? And maybe some of those mechanisms of living in the same village for 50 years and having that real sense of physical community there, maybe they were created for a reason. So I just wanted to get your take on whether you having more autonomy now, do you think that's increased your happiness? Has it stayed about the same or has it decreased? I think that's a really like incisive question because I am a traditionalist actually when it comes to a lot of these things. And these periods of travel whilst they do create tremendous opportunity to experience new things, and that's kind of exhilarating in a way, they do create certain challenges. Being away from family, being away from those social ties, um, losing a sense of routine, at least in the kind of transition periods between moving from one time zone, one geography to another. I think there's a lot to be said, especially, you feel it a lot when you have young children, but I think a lot of human beings are creatures of habit. And I think familiarity and habit they're certainly important for my well-being. So in this case, when we're traveling, well, in most cases when we travel, there's a specific reason for like why we're going where we're going. So in this particular instance, the reason that we've come to Malaysia is because our children are learning Mandarin, Chinese, and bringing them to Malaysia is an opportunity to pop them into local schools so they can get exposed firsthand to like a Mandarin environment. Now, um, there are some, as you say, some sacrifices that we like some challenges that we face to make that happen it is stressful. I'm not just talking about money here, but there are certain like stresses that you have to undergo where you unplug yourself from the support system, support network that you have back home. In my mind, the ideal scenario is like a balance between the two. Whilst I love routine, like you down to the level that like every day I'll have the same breakfast back home, like from the same supermarket, the same products, etc. Like I love that routine, like and not having to worry about that and freeing up that headspace to do the things that I really you know, want to be challenged by. Being able to mix it up with these periods of travel, that balance for now feels quite fun. I think when my kids get a bit older and they need more stability, a bit like I had stability when I was, you know, between the ages of seven and 18 or six and 18, I think that my children will need that at some point. So yeah, what I'm saying is I actually agree with your point. I do think that there's a lot to be said for routine, familiarity, community. I think there's a reason that those things have evolved in human behavioral patterns for a long period. And when you go against the grain, it does cause like negative consequences. So when I was growing up, kids who were homeschooled were considered really weird. It was a really odd thing to do. And that's what you're doing, right? So I just wanted to get your take on how homeschooling has maybe progressed and how you can do it in a way 
where perhaps you can even give a better education than traditional schooling? Like, what's your take on that? Right. So I agree with you. It was typically for people who were like, had an exclusionist perspective on mainstream society. They were trying to get away from something. Um, in some cases, that was like, you know, particularly um, conservative religious groups, people who are, um, you know, like effectively hippies or whatever it may be, like fringe groups. But COVID resulted basically in a kind of forced homeschooling experiment for many parts of the world, um, at least in the UK. The way that we homeschool is that we don't actually do most of the education ourselves. We do something called micro-schooling, which is where our kids like join small groups of children, five to 10 children that are being schooled by a trained teacher in an out-of-school setting. So it's a smaller group. It might be slightly mixed ages. Um, it's less contact time, but it's a much smaller group of children per teacher. And as a consequence, our kids have a lot more free time. And also we can augment the um, schedule with certain topics or certain activities that we feel are important, especially in early childhood, that a traditional school will struggle to provide unless you are going to pay, you know, um, large sums of money. And because we want to have a big family, um, you know, forking out thousands of pounds a month on education at this age feels like a trade-off that we're not quite willing to make just now. I also think there's a separate question, which is like, when you're talking about our homeschool kids weird, or are they just like outliers in some regard? What is your norm? Uh, if your norm is like playground socialization, whatever that is, there's that like bucket of experiences that kids get in a traditional school playground. If that's your benchmark, yes, homeschool children, they have like a slightly outlier experience. They have very different social patterns, et cetera, et cetera. For me, that's not my benchmark. The way that I think about it is like, you know, are they well-adjusted and happy? Are they interested in the things that they're learning? Are they getting plenty of physical activity? Are they spending time with their parents and teachers and people that we feel like really thrilled for them to spend time with? Are we nurturing their creativity? Are we, you know, all of these types of questions which are more like tuning into like a slightly different benchmark that we are creating for our, our own children around what feels normal for us. I think schooling is a tremendous, you know, service. Like I have a huge amount of respect for school teachers. There are many school teachers in my immediate family, including both my wife's parents. So it's not like a critique of school per se, but it's more just that, especially in early childhood, um, for us now, this actually works quite well and it feels like we can provide well for the children. It also gives us the freedom and flexibility to travel. There's a separate thing, which I, did, I haven't gone into much detail here, which is like the stuff that we deliberately lean into with homeschooling, which is sort of thinking like, if the world is changing as fast as it is, and even in the, the kind of COVID pandemic, so many things about like, even for me personally, like how I make my money, what my work looks like, where in the world I work from, like all of these things have totally transformed. And the skills that you will need to succeed and thrive in the future as the world of work is changing, those skills, I'm not sure that like the schools that we would have access to at this moment in time would be able to keep up with that pace of change. I think we've got a better shot at doing some of that ourselves. Um, so as our children get older, I think we will spend more time on certain types of skills development, certain types of resilience, certain types of like life experiences, even simple things like, you know, most schools don't do a great job of teaching children um, how to prepare their own food, how to, you know, actual skills that they can use to earn money above like a minimum wage level of earning when they leave school. So, you know, there's a lot in, in those buckets that um, matter to us that we would like to teach our kids. So Imran, 
when I, I speak to a lot of people who are a bit older than me and are essentially hustlers. And I just don't think I get an honest answer to this question because it's so personal and there's so much investment gone into it. But essentially it's that, you know, if you've gone through your twenties kind of hustling and then you have kids, is that a massive loss in terms of your career potential and your velocity? And do you have to make a big sacrifice to do that? Like what's been your experience of having kids and what impact that's had on your career things? Because just from my analysis of you, it seems like you'd achieved a lot of the high bandwidth things that that, that you're going to do or that, that you have done before having kids. And now that you've had kids, you've gone to more roles which are more conducive to that kind of lifestyle. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Interesting. Okay. So just to get, just to sort of um, get the chronology right. So when I joined McKinsey, five months after I joined, I had my first child. And then I resigned two months after I had my second child. My first child was two, two and a half at the time. And I had my third child when I was at the startup about a year before I left the company. So there are definitely trade-offs in working a busy professional life and having a young family. You can't, I, I don't think you can have it all if you're like climbing the greasy pole and working 70 hours a week in a job which demands you to be in certain places at certain times and doesn't afford you that flexibility. Like you will make certain sacrifices. You will see your children less. You will see your spouse less. You will exercise probably a bit less. There's something that will give. From the way that I have thought about it is that, and, and, and a lot of this I'm sort of figuring out as I go. I don't have like, I don't have it all figured out. But first of all, if you think about a traditional career story, in the first third of your career, say when you're like 21, 22 until 35, in those initial years, for many people, uh, well, for some people, that's when they settle down and have children, young children. And then 35 to 45, 50, like maybe their kids go through their teens and then they like pop out and go to university and those sort of empty nest years start from the age of 50 plus. The way that I think about this is that um, for many people, those early phases are when they're most busy and then like when they have more flexibility, when they're kind of coasting or cruising, or maybe they have like financial security, their kids have actually left the household. Now, my wife and I, we really want to spend a lot of quality time with our children when they're young. We want to travel with them. We want to be there, like spending time with them on a day-to-day basis. Like I want to eat with them every day, like if I can, three meals a day, otherwise at least like breakfast and dinner. So I've sort of conceived of my career, like turning those phases a little bit on their head where, okay, I had a busy part at the beginning, but in this middle period where I'm going to have this like unique opportunity to spend time with my family and other things as well that like, you know, if you lose track of your health, for example, in your twenties and thirties or early forties, then you will, you know, it will bite you in the ass when you're in your fifties. So I want to take care of all of those things now. And I sort of wonder if I can have like almost like an encore in my career when I hit 45 and my, um, my eldest will be like 16 and my youngest will be eight or nine, maybe even a bit older than that. When I may like rededicate myself to a traditional like organizational leadership type of role in a large company, whatever it may be. So I've sort of flipped that a bit on its head to say, I'm going to take that latter period where I have much more autonomy and control. I'm going to bring it earlier. But how do I do that? How do I make that work? Well, there's certain things I need to do. I need to own equity in things so that I have a shot at financial freedom so that in this period, I'm not like, you know, um, missing out on the financial security that I would otherwise have had in my 50s. The second thing is I need to really think about how I can maximize my earning potential for now. 
And for me, that means developing certain hard skills, certain experiences, and then contracting on my own terms and having flexibility. So there's no point being a contractor if I have to then contract you know, in Paris four days a week or something because then I've lost the autonomy. On the skills development piece, I am, even this content creation, like I believe that executives of the future in companies that have a hybrid or remote element will need to be good at content creation. They'll need to be able to understand storytelling, written storytelling, video, all of these things. You take an example of somebody like Vas Narasimhan, the CEO of Novartis, like he pops up on my LinkedIn feed all the time with his, you know, corporate messages, his like internal messages. And he, I think if I were an employee of his company, like I would feel that I have this like ongoing conversation with my CEO. I know what's in his mind. I know what he's like to talk to. I know what his personality is like because it comes through on the camera. So one kind of experiment I think that will emerge in the course of my career is like, you know, does this pay off? is like audience building, learning content creation, et cetera. Will that actually act as a catalyst to my development if I were to go back into a traditional corporate role in say 10 years time, 15 years time, especially because I'm like also trying to contract as well to keep my hand in um, with the day-to-day -day work and you know do interesting projects with those companies. If I go in for a full-time role in the future, will I be penalized because I've had this period or will I be able to leverage this and the skills and the platform and all of these things um, to actually act as you know, a unique advantage that I have as a, as a member of the workforce. That's really interesting because I've spoken to you about this a little bit before, but I keep on noticing that people who, in my mind, have conventionally made it are now going into the content play and they're making their own content. And I've always wondered why, because for me, making content is something I do for fun, but also it's my way of making it. It's like my roots in. So it seems very strange that someone who's already, in my mind, at the end of that journey would start you know, start coming back and, and doing this. So is one of the reasons essentially something to do with it becoming a competitive advantage in 10 or 20 years, even in traditional careers to have a personal brand to be known to people, for people to know what you're about to like you, et cetera. Is, is that kind of what the play is? hundred percent. I think that the CV of the future is not going to be like a document someone prints out and staples. It's going to be all of the stuff that people find on the internet for better or for worse, uh, unfortunately, because the internet has a long memory. Uh, it will be all of those things that people find out when they Google you. It will be your personal website, all of your media assets. It will be the things that you built that are testament to, to your ability, for sure. Um, just on your point about like your motivation. So I, I do enjoy content creation. I think a lot of people that are uh, have that entrepreneurial impulse, they like putting stuff out in the world. You know, the classic like startup mantra of like ship, ship something, ship it. When you release this podcast, you are shipping a digital product right? And you can monetize it in different ways, as we talked about earlier, but it's basically a digital product that you're shipping and you're a, you know, direct to consumer business in a sense, because you have these consumers and you're searching for product market fit, which is a sign that, you know, probably that your repeat listeners as a ratio of all of your listeners is high. And when somebody listens to a podcast, they stay till the end. So those are your consumer product metrics. hundred percent agree with you. Um, and I certainly have that creative impulse. I do enjoy it. I have to get a bit more serious about it now because I've made quite a lot of videos in a very like random walk type of fashion where I've made leaving medicine videos, like management consulting, like a total of six or seven different topics. So I'm now trying to be more disciplined about it. But there's also a skills development element, right? So the workflow that you have to put in to get this podcast to happen at the right time with somebody who's, you know, maybe potentially a lot busier than I am. That is a certain skill. That's like a certain systems thinking. It's communication, process management, um, you know, editing something to perfection, 
all of these are like professional skills that you're learning as well. And I feel the same way. I feel when I produce content, when I script it, when I shoot it, audio, video, when I edit it, et cetera, like that's a skill set. And even in the future, if I'm not doing it myself, but just like I'm in a business where we're producing content as part of a marketing strategy, I now will probably have more experience than uh, most people in the room, unless they're like professionals in this space. Do you think it'd be more useful to know how to code or how to make good content? Oh, and you have to pick in a relative side. terms. <laughs> I, if you could be like exceptional at one or the other, I think you would be solving for slightly different things. So if you're an exceptional engineer, you will be paid extremely handsomely and you will have your pick of any career or you could start your own company, but that will still probably be stressful because it's not just about being good at coding, but you'll have a great like menu of professional options to pick from and financial security. If you're an exceptional content developer, uh, you'll have to deal with everything that comes with fame and recognition, which is a very mixed bag. And you may become financially wealthy, but not necessarily. And you may also be like tied to your work because a lot of content creators can't exit and sell their brand because their brand is them. Um, so it's difficult to sell. So pros and cons. I think if I had to choose right now, what would I do? I actually enjoy content creation. I probably, I would enjoy software development as well if I was like a maestro of it, but I'm, because I have to choose, I'll pick content. <laughs> I asked Molly Gilmartin from Albion VC this question a few weeks ago, and it was essentially around managing your own ego as you progress in your own career. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things I'm coming across now is that I've started off very much as the student and being very curious and playing that role, but I'm finding now more and more that I'm feeling like a transition to a more authority figure or someone who should know what they're doing essentially and i just wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts on how you can perhaps manage both or, or whether you do need to transition eventually from playing that curious student role to being the authority figure and how you manage all of these things like your own ego your status mm. projecting a certain image across as you become more and more senior like do you have any thoughts around that i believe that you should always be 100% honest with yourself and the people around you about your actual competency and understanding of a situation. Even if you're asked to lead a situation and you don't know what you're doing, being honest and open about that doesn't have to make you seem like you are a weak leader. Let's say, for example, I was in a company just now and I was facing a challenging situation which I didn't fully understand. I would actually, my instinct would be to be very open about that, but to share with my team, like how we're going to solve that, like, you know, which expertise do we need to bring in, what decision framework or what values will guide us as we navigate a period of uncertainty or a period of immense challenge. That's how I would approach it. And my instinct from my work is to do it in that way, because I think that engenders trust and confidence. I think that there's a certain type of like authority figure that is masking a lack of confidence. And this is partly as like the fake it till you make it thing if you, if you take it to its extreme, which is that you are actually faking it. Um, I think that's very dangerous. I mean, healthcare is a special example where that's very dangerous, but even in business. So my instinct is to really adopt the amateur mindset. And the interesting, the interesting thing about the etymology of the word amateur, I think, is that it comes from the root word, meaning somebody who like loves something, loves to do something. If I've got that wrong, just cut it out. But um, like, you know, demonstrating that you're learning and developing and constantly improving for me feels like the right thing to do. Last thing I wanted to ask was, 
Have there been any habits or ways you approach problems that have been helpful for you in your career? A few things here. So I certainly think that spending most of my 20s off social media really helped me. Um, I was at medical school when Facebook was released. So prior to that, there was no Facebook. Um, and it wasn't like a huge part of my life in the early years. There was no WhatsApp. Um, I never really used Instagram until I created an account to like uh, share my video content. Um, same thing with TikTok. I still don't have a Facebook account. So I'm sure because I see now as a content creator, when I have to dip into those platforms, how much of my time they can consume. So for me, like the ideal balance to strike would be to be a creator on those platforms without falling into the consumption trap. I do think it's a trap because a lot of these technologies are, you know, weaponized is like a strong word to use, but in terms of people's attention, I think it's kind of weaponized. So that's the first thing is like, you know, take control of your time, take control of your focus and your attention and deploy your energy on things that um, that really matter, whatever stage of life you're in. The second thing is around habit formation. And I think a big part of that is like surrounding yourself with people that are trying to build the same kinds of habits, whether it's regular exercise, eating well, but also trying to default some of the decisions in your life towards like default healthier, default more focused. As an example, um, how you set up your house and your working space, like are you, for me primarily, like, am I setting it up as a place where I can work really well and I can work out? Or am I setting it up as a place where like I can play video games and like watch films, even though it's something I don't do that often. So doing the former means that it just becomes a lot easier for me to avoid distraction, to work exercise into my routine, to cycle as part of my commute, whatever it may be. The final thing I would say, like this is a bit of a random list, but just to add one more thing, I would say that whenever I am facing something challenging uh, or like a big task or a big goal, my instinct is to just run headfirst at that problem. Now that can get you into all kinds of like difficult situations from time to time. The benefit that I have sometimes seen is that, you know, I'm able to break the back of a problem. You know, in the world of content, for example, people say like, just ship the product. Even if you're not that happy with the video, the podcast, just get it out the door. So like thinking about um, something challenging and thinking, what can I do to just break the back of this thing or like really commit to just getting it done whether it's having someone to hold you accountable, whether it's scheduling time in your calendar to like uh, break the problem down and move it forward, you know, so it doesn't feel like a big unstructured thing that you can't quite make sense of. That is something that I, I think I, I think I subconsciously do it, but it has been mentioned to me several times that, you know, that's something that I do. So I think that's probably one worth mentioning. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review. And by the way, all of these episodes are now available on YouTube and on Spotify in video format. If you did enjoy this episode, you might like episode 73, which was my first interview with Imran, in which we talk a lot more about his origin story. Thanks for listening.